There's an interesting scripture in the book of Daniel, the 12th chapter. Uh, here's what it says. Daniel, of course, is prophesying, uh, or at least he's being given the prophecy about the end of the age. And he said, at that time, Daniel chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of, the, of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was seen since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time, at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. We've been talking about the Lamb's book of life, final judgment, book of revelation. And look at that, we're also talking about the first and second resurrections. Verse 2 says, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that shall be wise, or they that are wise, shall shine as the brightness of the heavens. And they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. And Daniel shut up the words and sealed the book even to the time of the end. Many shall go to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then Daniel said, I looked, and behold, there stood another two, the one on one side of the bank of the river, the other on the other side. And the one said to the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? When will the time of the end come? This is very important. And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and left hand to heaven, and swore by him that lives forever, that it shall be for time, times and half a time, three and a half, and when he shall have accomplished to shatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. And I heard and I understood not. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified and made holy and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, 
and none of the wicked shall understand, and the wise shall understand, and so on. Go your way, verse 13, till the end, you will sleep and you will stand in your place at the end of the days. Wow. Astonishing, isn't it? Who, those reference the Lamb's Book of Life, those who are written in the book, it references the resurrection of the dead, both the first and second resurrections, speaking of those who were raised to life, whose names are in the book, and those who were raised to shame and to everlasting contempt, speaking of the great white throne judgment. When asked, when shall these things be, he told the length of time from a certain time to the end, and then he described a condition that exists at that time. So he described three and a half year period from a beginning point uh, that he identified, which I, I'm not getting into obviously. But the other thing he said that is so critically important is, well actually he said two things. One was, when the power of the holy people has been finally shattered. And the other thing was, men will go back and forth, to and fro, and knowledge will increase. Very important clues. The power of the holy people finally shattered. Since the beginning of, of the Christian faith, early after the early indications of the faith, within the Roman Empire, Constantine gave and Charlemagne ratified a grant of authority from the Roman state which was a universal empire, to the church in exchange for a reliable citizenry. The woman who was persecuted by the Roman state using Satan, or Satan using the Roman state, that woman fled into the wilderness but emerged as one of the two pillars of Western civilization, which in turn influenced the whole earth and did so by military might and the concentration of military might in Western nations, foundationed upon the nexus of church and state and economic might, where the ethics of trade were associated with quote-unquote the Judeo-Christian ethic. 
This woman who emerged from the wilderness, sits on the beast, opposes the saints, and this has been much of what we've talked about. So she has had power, unprecedented power, until the price of her harlotry became too burdensome even for the kings to bear, and they devour her, burn her. That's when the power of the holy people is finally broken. This power shall not, should never be considered the power of the Holy Spirit. This was the power of her deception and the monetization of her beauty. That's why she's a harlot. What is the beauty of the church? This harlot church. The beauty is that she appears to be capable of speaking for God and her words and her association and her approvals bewitch the nations to rely upon their judgments or the judgments of the church without questioning the standards uh, that under, that ought underlie these judgments. Now, out of this will come a people whose names are written in the book. They are always, even here in Daniel, they are distinguished from the power of the holy people that's finally broken. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life have permanence in the eternal order of things. Those who acquired power by trading services and ended up in a condition of harlotry in subservience to the kings will find that their growing need for security, a thing that could not ever be fully supplied, except by obedience and submission to the rule of Christ, that that illusion of permanence, that illusion of prosperity, that illusion of well-being is a bottomless pit and even the nations would be unable to bear the weight of that demand and will turn against her. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, will fall. But those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life are not part of that falling away because they are the standard. Falling away implies that the standard has been brought forth by which to measure the authenticity of claims and having been weighed and measured, the harlot is found wanting. They are not to be confused with those whose names are written in the book. But the important symbols, the important, um, the important clues are when the power of the holy people is finally broken and when people run from conference to conference 
hoping to get a little bit more understanding. But in truth, they're merely learning more and more without it making any impact at all on their faith. Always learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. So we can confuse going to conferences, and I'm not saying not to go, but we can confuse the activity of going to conference, conferences with the result of having a faithful uh, walk with God and being refined by the fires of trial even as your name is written in the book. Careful, important distinctions. That is why Jesus Himself warned us so often about what happens as the age concludes. He said, let no man deceive you in any way. It is only when you are aligned to the standard that you're immune from deception. If it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived. These are warnings associated with the end of the age, the very end of the age, and the return of the Lord and continuing. After the return of the Lord, the chapter closes on salvation by grace through faith. The chapter opens on salvation by strict obedience because the focus is on saving the soul, saving the soul. For those who elected not to submit and to obey and therefore to become conformed to the standard of Christ, the millennium remains that last final conditioning for all those whom God has received as His sons but who in rebellion and disobedience insisted on their childish ways of living because it's what they were comfortable with and they despised change which represented the loss of control. So they elected to remain in states of infancy and end up at the time of the return of the Lord and if they died their resurrection, they ended up uh, missing the mark, falling short and the remediation has to be accomplished during the time of the millennium which is the express purpose for the millennium. But also there's another purpose that I want to move over into and that is the purpose of rule, to learn how to rule during the millennium. Because rule, the key concept of rule is about having the power and the authority of Christ delegated to you with specificity to rule over nations and over people and over domains during the millennium. 
Because what comes after the millennium, so millennium serves two purposes, two principal purposes. There are other purposes, but two, two principal purposes. One is the, remedi the remedial salvation, finishing the work that was not finished during this time, during present time and continuing up unto the return of the Lord. For those who were rebellious servants, who did not submit, did not obey, but were given the Holy Spirit as a seal of sonship, continued to operate out of their own power. By the way, one just there's something I've been running into a lot lately. There are people who I know have had a salvation experience. People I know who have had a life of walking, attempting to walk in the, in the teachings of Scripture. But when troubles come, seem to just sort of buckle under the troubles. Troubles, trials, will always be difficult to endure and to walk through. They're called fiery trials. That they will always be difficult. When you're in a time of trial, make no mistake, it's a difficult, hard, uncomfortable, unpleasant, almost unbearable time. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who, in the slightest of um, happenings, shakings, revert back to the same mindset of taking matters into their own hands and acting in a fashion to restore control to them and whose emotions become radically unsettled so much so as to disorient them. That's more what I'm talking about in trials. If they revert back to patterns of behavior that were actually their familiar patterns before they were saved, before they ever had the knowledge of Christ, and, and they insist on that and dig their heels in, they won't grow up. They won't grow past that, that point. And in fact, they won't even stay at that point because you can't maintain by the sweat of your brow any measure to which God brought you at an earlier time. You'll go back. And, and typically you'll go all the way back and it'll happen at a head-spinning, head-turning pace. The millennium will cure that by the daily regimen of strict obedience to an a non-negotiable standard called a rod of iron. But as I mentioned in that discussion, which we have had, there are those who are ruling over in the millennium 
and those who are ruled over. Those who are ruling over have applied that standard to their lives and are now conformed to that standard themselves and they're given rule. But as in all instances, these are the beginnings of things, not the end of things. And it is not to be said that you're learning to rule, that you, because you applied the standard of righteousness to your life in this life and became conformed to that standard, it is not to say that you know how to rule perfectly. Because the idea is that as you're, as you're faithful with the measure of rule that has been given to you, you'll be given more. And that principle underlies rule and that principle carries over into the millennium. Most things, most things that represent processes and processes leading to results, most things, both processes and results, can be expected to be carried on and carried over into the millennium. The return of the Lord doesn't suddenly say everything is fine and perfect. It's a mistake to think that obedience will lead to sinlessness. Well, because God judges the heart. So it's not about having no sin, it's not about that. It's about the willingness, actually the change of your heart, the conditioning of your heart to obey in all things. So even if you don't know what the right thing is, you have a condition of heart that would quickly cause you to pivot, to turn to what the right thing is whenever it's revealed to you. That's what God judges. And if you come to that condition, if in this life the condition that results in you is this overwhelming willingness to pivot to whatever God reveals to you at the time He reveals it to you, then your soul is saved. Hmm? Then your soul is saved because with consistency, whenever the Spirit speaks to you, you'll make the change, you'll make the adjustments, you won't debate, it won't be long in coming, you will have turned to the place where your desire changes, where your desire changes. When your desire changes, your soul has been brought back under the rule of your spirit. When the desire of your soul is to be accurately aligned with whatever your spirit is telling you, even in as much as your spirit is in line with the Spirit of God, then your soul is not in control, your spirit is. And then your soul is obedient. Obeying is the obedience of your soul and what your soul obeys is your spirit. Your spirit is not separated from God, your spirit is either 
dormant if you're unsaved or animated if you're saved. And the intelligence of your spirit is directly derived from the inputs and by way of connection to the Spirit of God. So if you end up there, you will have a willingness to change whenever God speaks to you. And that willingness will be increasingly evidenced by the fact that God doesn't have to speak to you loudly, He doesn't have to speak to you with radical connection, He only needs to speak to you by a whisper. Sometimes you'll hear in the counsel that somebody else is receiving, if you happen to be in the presence of such things, in the counsel that someone else is receiving, you'll hear the whispers of God to you. If there are corrections that, that you, if there are behaviors that you observe in the lives of, of other people, the Spirit of God will make you keenly aware of the extent to which such behaviors ex- might exist in you. And no one will know that the Spirit spoke to you while the focus was on somebody else because you'll change. That's when you're, these are the indications that your soul is saved. Your heart is not hardened. You love the truth. And progressively, you give up the right to certain outcomes that you once used to measure the value of your life by. And you choose instead the things that, see, that have been redefined for you as the pleasure of the Lord concerning you. And you eagerly go to those things. And you willingly go to those things. And you don't murmur and complain. And you don't begrudge the effort and the time consumed with things like that. Because really Christ has become your life. And your life is now hidden with Him in God, so His appearing is actually in you and through you. Now when you reach that place, and that's the condition in which you enter the millennium, ah, whereas before people could choose whether or not they listened to you, now they can't choose because because you are given domains which include people to rule over. I often say to spiritual fathers, the goal is really not whether or not you were able to keep them and raise them up to maturity. That's not the goal. It should be your desire to see that outcome. But it's not, God does not assign you that goal. What God assigns to you is the duty to be faithful in your administrations. What were we told about the servants and the talents? Faithful with a few things you'll be given rule over many things. 
of recent times I've really been thinking about this in connection with my own life and the work I have done and the ministry I've undertaken in serving God in this life. I recognize that I plant, I have planted, I have sowed most of my life. You know, I, as an example, I create these messages and they're put on the internet for everybody, anybody, wherever they live in the world to come and eat and drink without money and without price. There are certain ones who labor with me in these matters and so they are shareholders with me of the grace and of the outcomes. And we all labor without the hope of profiting and being enriched by these things. But I, I don't count, I do not count the numbers of persons affected by the things we say. The scope of what we have touched is way, way, way beyond what I know or even care to know. I know fathers who have labored intensely with people and they rescued them out of impossible situations. And as God once said of Israel, I have raised up children and they've rebelled against me. And in the plaintive sound of the Lord's lament, the ox knows his owner, the donkey knows his master's crib, but Israel did not know nor did it consider the faithfulness of God. So uh, for those of you who have labored, who have given your substance and really tried to raise up in the earth a people to maturity, only to have them say to you at the end of all of that, after sometimes years of walking with you, they turn around and say, well, I, I don't know if I even believe in this father-son message. And they've been the recipients and the beneficiaries of all of this grace and goodness. But they turn suddenly uh, and say, I, I, I don't know if I even believe this. Because you did it unto the Lord, it's not in vain. It's not in vain. You may not see the outcomes of the faithfulness of your labors, so you need only to know that you followed the direction of the Holy Spirit and you did so to the best of your ability, giving the most you had as was required in the situation and leave it on the altar as a sacrifice to God. Don't take it back, don't begrudge it, don't lament what was demanded of you and for heaven's sake, don't feel like you're a failure.
because it's not the end of the matter. When your heart is in the condition where whatever God required of you, you're willing to give and you have a track record of giving it. Then you are rich in the treasures that have been stored up for you. Those treasures are recorded in books in heaven and your promotion and your status and your rank will be vastly different from what it ever was on this earth. I'm satisfied that all of the big names who were known for self-promotion and the things they could do will be fortunate if they actually end up being given any measure of rule in the millennium. And others who faithfully served, often in obscurity, will be elevated in rank to the surprise of those who thought themselves more worthy. The key now is the salvation of your soul which produces an end state of obedience to God which is demonstrated in the works that you do, the things you do that God requires of you. That's the manner of ruling now. That's the manner of ruling now. In the millennium, rule will be different. There will be no discretion as to whether you are an appropriate delegate of the Lord Jesus Christ, no discussion as to whether you sit upon a throne of authority that reflects the glory of the throne of God the great white throne and he who sits on it. So whereas the millennium will be for the primary purpose of remediating that which was not finished amongst those whom God received as sons and they will be ruled over, the millennium is also about training those who are faithful to rule and by that to both save the souls of those subject to rule and to expand the scope of your own rule. We shall look when we continue in the next series, we shall look at how these things play out within the context of a world that is ruled over by the Lord Jesus Christ, the administrative center of which is the new Jerusalem and the whole earth being refurbished to accommodate the newness of this rule. New heavens, new earth in one expression. That's what we want to talk about the next time. I hope you will pay diligent and close attention to the revelation of the revelation. 
to the revelations of the book of Revelation because they're designed to lay out for you a path, a lighted path through the darkness that has come upon the earth all the way through to the hope that lies beyond all of it, beyond the great white throne of judgment and on into the city with walls and gates and twelve foundations, which was the message of the Lamb distributed in twelve baskets full of fragments held in the hands of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. We'll come to that next. We'll talk about the city that has as a centerpiece that throne of authority which we spoke about from which the Word of God flows as a river called the river of life that nurtures the roots of the righteous who are like twelve trees standing by the rivers of water who bring forth their fruit in their season and how this all contributes to the final salvation of the soul by restoring man in accurate and right relationship to God as he was before the original departure from God. I'm Sam Solon. Exciting stuff ahead for us in the book of Revelation. Who says this is a book of opaque and dark references? No, it has references to things that are dark, but it's not opaque. It's full of light and hope. Blessed are those whose names are found written in the book. They'll enter into the gates, into the city. I'll see you then in our conversations continuing in the future. I'm Sam Solon. Bye for now.